Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording within three prisons across the Colorado Department of Corrections. Denver Women's Correctional Facility. Sterling Correctional Facility. Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Denise Price. Andrew Drake. Terry Mosley Jr. Sean J. Marshall. Ashley Hamilton. Sarah Berry. Brett Phillips. Angel Lopez. Travis Barnes. Matthew Labonte. Ms. Grant. Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. Because we recorded this episode virtually across computer speakers and so many different sites, there will be moments in our interviews with Director Stansel and Kevin James where our sound quality is not as perfect as we wanted it to be. We'll ask for your understanding and let you know that we're always working to provide a wonderful listening experience. Anyone that knows me knows I've been a carpenter's apprentice privileged enough to work with a diverse group of people in creating actual bridges, like real bridges that span earth. The work is challenging both mentally and definitely physically, yet when all of it is done and all the work is accomplished and the site gets cleaned up and the bridge starts letting cars cross and people walk over it, there's no greater feeling of accomplishment there becomes this spanning representation of teamwork in in such a huge way. Well, Denise, I know you, but I didn't know that you used to build bridges. And, and, and by the way, I do think that's cool as hell. But I do want to say that you're right about the teamwork aspect because America and the whole world really are definitely in need of some heavy lifting and some good old-fashioned elbow grease. And right now, I'm just honored for our audience to meet fellow builders and creative thinkers, you know, that are really doing all this work and maybe hearing their view of what is needed will inspire us all to dig in and get our hands dirty in creating the great bridge. In this episode, we'll hear from two members of our own team, Sean and Brett, an incarcerated man in CDOC SWIFT program firefighter, Kevin James, CDOC Executive Director Dean Williams, and CDOC Deputy Director Andre Stansel. And right here, I want to take a moment to say to our listeners that for the most meaningful listening experience, we suggest that you listen to The Great Divide, the episode where associate producer Sean Marshall interviews Blue Lives Matter supporter CDOC Captain Clarkson and segment co-host Brett Phillips interviews Black Lives Matter supporter uh, Leandra Bumpus, who is an incarcerated woman at Denver Women's Correctional Facility. And Denise, I know you remember. The Great Divide was all about illustrating the racial and political gaps that have divided our country in the last few years, right? But in this episode, this episode here, The Great Bridge, it's all about bridging that divide. And we start laying that foundation brick by brick by revisiting Sean and Brett as they converse and reflect on the social political conversations that they had in The Great Divide. So let's catch up with them. Sean, 
so to start i guess it would serve me best to give the world a little bit of insight as to who i am i'm a 36 year old black man that is undoubtedly endured and seen firsthand many of these injustices that the black lives matter movement is bringing to the forefront of the com- these conversations and uh as a conscious individual and definitely a left-leaning individual I feel it is my responsibility to lend my voice to these conversations and be a representative for the black community for the voiceless that's why I choose to inject my voice in these conversations the way I do or try to contribute in whatever ways that I can so just to be real I am I am a conservative and I'm not a Trump conservative or a Bush conservative. I am, I guess I would lean more towards like libertarian, what the society can considers conservative these days. Um, I do not, um, I do not espouse a lot of their stuff, but I grew up that way. I grew up, um, in a home where my dad, uh, was very adamant about us holding and paying attention to our freedom, not just mine, but everybody's and holding that for everybody and learning how to care within that freedom and care about other people's problems. And so like, I guess the caring conservative, I know that sounds like a, like uh, an oxymoron these days, but um, the reality is that there are plenty of people like me and we do not get on TV. We do not get to say what we want to say. And so like, this is my time right now to say, to talk for people who actually care and how actually want to change what's going on in our country and what's going on in the world. Sean, you, in your conversation with Captain Clarkson, you, you know, you talked about a lot, but you also, but, you, but a lot of it was about this divide that we have, you know, and if you were to take it down to its essence, the root of what you think the, what you think is going on and creating that divide, what, what do you think that would be? So I think there's two things at play. I feel the first problem is many Americans refuse to acknowledge our true history and reckon with our dark past. And because of that fact, we're not able to move forward from it. There's many that just try to sweep it under the rug tell blacks to get over it, whatever, and they don't understand or even try to understand any of the grievances or the realities that are still plaguing the black community or these urban environments that are residual effects of all that took place during slavery on up to present time. And I think that's the first problem. Second, I feel tribalism is becoming very dangerous like people are so stubbornly devoted to their camps to the point where even if they are wrong they will support their camp regardless and we just constantly find ourselves at an impasse like both sides of the aisle refuse to work with each other simply because of political views and it's not that they're worried about finding remedies to any of the issues at hand or that they're worried about society's best interests. Everyone is only worried about their political motivations, what party they're a part of, and where they stand on the political spectrum. And because of that, I feel like we're not going to move forward unless we get to a place where people 
are ready to listen to each other until we are ready to fight towards a common goal, regardless of what your political affiliation or regardless of what your ethnicity may be. Like, until we all start seeing each other as just human beings marching towards a common cause, all with the same wants, needs, and desires, like, we're just going to be at this standstill, and I think that's where we're at right now in history. And we're at an inflection point, I feel, that calls for our immediate attention because this precipice we're at right now, we're either about to take a leap forward or we're about to take tremendous steps back and I'm just hoping that many of us see the bigger picture before it's too late what about you what do you feel is at the core of many of these problems when you went into this conversation what expectations did you have or did any of your perspectives change how did her conversation with you reshape any of your views man so First of all, like I was just blown away by just the way she knew. I mean, she she knows herself, you know what I mean? And that was super cool because that gives me, when we talked, that gave me hope to be able to better understand each other. But the 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 view shape was definitely in, in the Blue Lives Matter comment when she said that it, that it was, uh, it's, a, it's not a race, it's a job. So the point of it isn't that, their lives don't matter. The point of it is that we got to take care of what's, what's messed up right now. Yeah. And that's what really made me start thinking about like, why are people so angry and why are people so, you know, cause I, lo- I looked at the, at the, the riots and the, you know, the looting and all this stuff. And while I don't know who, who was who, and I, it doesn't honestly, it doesn't matter because the, the anger is, has been building for a long, long time. Wasn't it Martin Luther King that said, and I'm paraphrasing his words, that when we see the rioting and looting, like that's the anger of the oppressed, bro. It reaches a boiling point. Yeah. Even if they were Black Lives Matter protesters, because Captain Clarkson kept on pointing to that during our conversation. Yes, I rebuke those acts. No one should act out violently in order to get their point across. But like I told him, I understand that outrage, you know, my community has been dealing with these injustices for hundreds of years. We have tried to handle these problems diplomatically. How many times have we peacefully protested? How many times have we tried to use our voices only to be disregarded, only to be shut out, and only to be repressed? And it gets to a point where the only language is violence, or you're just so outraged and so inflamed about whatever's going on that you just destroy whatever's in front of you. You know, you just act out violently. So I get it, bro. It's just these outbursts of rage, just built up frustrations. That's all we're seeing. Or that's all we were seeing when those riots were taking place. Yeah, I I logically understand it. I do not uh, agree with what happened, but I do want to be aware in my own self of like, the question isn't what's wrong with these people, but what happened to these people? And if I, you know, that's my mindset is what happened to them that brought them to that place where that's the, where they feel like that's the only outlet that they have, that that's the only thing that they can do where they can be seen and heard. That is definitely signifies a huge problem, huge problem. Life is like a barbecue with people on the grill. If you don't burn in the fire, then you better when you do.
Denise, consider the Black Lives Matter movement versus the Blue Lives Matter movement for a moment. Is there a thread that unites these sides? Hmm. A thread? That's a loaded question. And I think it is just a thread. Um, let me think on that. We asked in our episode of the horrific gift of COVID if differences could be met with curiosity. Not the typical feeling of being thrown off of our square by passing a perceived threat. Yet, when we are disillusioned, do we realize the cost of these beliefs, these values, the ripple effect that is passed along? I think we missed the point of why these movements, these groups were established. They both came in wanting harm fixed and the accountability to the harm. I think if we think about those base reasons of their, the essence of why they were created, maybe that could be the thread. But then I have to bring in prison because we're in prison and it was created for safety and to hold the wrongdoers accountable, right? Right. So we just heard from Sean and Brett as they laid framework to the bridge that we all should be crossing. And now we're going to tune into Sean as he interviews his friend, Blue Lives Matter supporter Kevin James, who's an incarcerated white man who is part of the CDOC SWIFT firefighting program. And these two have known each other for years, right? They've facilitated programs together and have had countless difficult conversations, and they've actually been working in unison to positively shift this system. And honestly, you know, I believe that uh, for the rest of our society, that they are a great example of how we all can cross the bridge and meet in the middle. So joining us today is Mr. Kevin James. Kevin, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. It's nice to nice to be here. Nice to participate in this conversation. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. If you would, for our listeners, I would like for you to just tell them a little bit about yourself, how you grew up, and some of your views in early childhood, maybe regarding law enforcement. That's a broad, broad question. I was raised in foster care. My first earliest memory is being snatched from my mom and put into a back of a cop car. So as you can imagine, I think I was four years old, three or four years old, and my view of law enforcement was tainted immediately. However, being raised in that environment, I learned how to fight. I fought for every single thing that I've had in my life because I was raised around people that really didn't have a vested interest in my success. They didn't have a vested interest in where I was going because I was a temporary resident, basically, uh, wherever I was. Even today, I'm in prison and I'm a temporary resident and I view it as such. My first run in, I guess you could say, with the law was running away from these environments. So it's really, it's challenging to like pick a space and like start there because there's so much. You know, you're from the Springs. Anybody that's from the Springs knows that Fountain and Shelton is predominantly black. I was raised in Pikes Peak Park through elementary school and I went to Carmel, I went to Pikes Peak Elementary, and I was one of, I was basically the minority <laughs> in that environment when I was growing up in school. 
So I definitely developed appreciation and a friendship with a broad range of individuals growing up. I've been all over. So I've been exposed to a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different values, and I've got to kind of pick and choose what I think fits me as a person more so than someone that was basically brought up to believe a certain set of values or beliefs. So is it safe to say because of some of the crowds that you did grow up around and many of your influences and even the criminal life that you came to lead that your early perceptions of law enforcement were probably bad and that you were averse to authority in those initial years? Yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would go further than that and say that I viewed anybody in a position of authority as the enemy. Yeah. Um, because they destroyed everything that I knew. Everything that I loved, everything that I thought was important, and everything that I thought as a young child growing up was meaningful. So. Yeah, and that's, that's definitely why your name came to mind when we were discussing having this conversation, because one of the interesting things about you, or one of the things that's definitely intrigued me when we crossed paths is your current respect for authority. And when I consider your upbringing, when I consider the life you once led, it's just interesting to see that transition because right now you would probably label yourself a Blue Lives Matter proponent, no? Yeah, yeah. And could you explain a little bit like how that happened how that came to be. People listening to this are like, how is a career criminal supportive of police, let alone a convict? We're talking to someone that is incarcerated and this man supports police officers. Like, how is this even a thing? That's an interesting conversation. Um, some of your uh, fellow co-hosts and cohorts in this podcast actually are really familiar with the time and place that that transition happened. I would say 2000 at CAE. It was uh, like September, the fall of 2000. And I met a man named Jim and he came into the facility as an AA sponsor. Now, I, I should like preface this by saying that I was fresh out of prison, first time incarcerated, spent the entire time that I was in CAE. It's a halfway house in Colorado Springs. Jim came in there and volunteered to be an AA sponsor and he volunteered to bring an AA meeting into the facility at the time. Um, a really dear friend of mine that I was in prison with was there and we kind of went back and forth, honestly, like, is this, is this guy for real? Like, what's this all about? Because we were questioning this dude's motives. Like, why is he in here? What is he trying to get? You know, the whole thinking that there's some ulterior motive behind people's behavior. That's kind of like ingrained in people that was raised in the street, because I was more or less raised in the street. So I'm doing this 12 steps with Jim. And I don't know if anybody's familiar with the AA 12 steps, but in step four and five, you make a list of all the people you hurt and you make a commitment to go in and like clean up that mess. Simplified, right? So I'm giving this to this guy. I guess again, you know, Jim started picking me up. He doesn't even know me. He's picking me up and taking me up to his house and he lives up on the north side of the Springs. Nice, beautiful house, beautiful wife, kid. Like, I don't even understand why this dude is even bringing me to his house and like trusting me to walk around his house and get the things that I want and make myself at home. And we do this fourth step and I admit to Jim 
robberies, kidnappings, shooting, things that I had done that I had never been incarcerated for. And he turns to me and he says, you know what I do for a living? I said, what? He says, I'm a cop. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh man, I'm tripping, right? I could get arrested for the things that I just told this person. Yeah. And he says, you know, I'm no different than you are. I'm a human being that's made mistakes and he laid it out like what we're doing here is we're confronting the things that we've done in our past. We're gonna take the steps necessary for you to confront those things. So you no longer walk around looking over your shoulder. You no longer walk around feeling shame or guilt or regret for the things that you've done. And it blew me away. And he was right at my side to do these things and like help me take these steps and like face the things that I had done that I hadn't been necessarily like charged with or convicted of and like clean up that mess. And that moment changed everything that I thought about people in the position of authority. It's a very distinct moment. So I know it like it was yesterday. It's crazy how love and compassion can go so far. By him investing in you in that way, how it just instantaneously shifted your paradigms. Yeah. Having been reincarcerated since that event and now being immersed back into the system because you're currently incarcerated, hopefully going home soon. But as it stands, you know, you are in a penal institution. So I'm just wondering, has your perception changed throughout the years or have you held on to that? Like, do you still revere law enforcement, still look at authority the same way you did after this AA sponsor of yours impacted your life as he did? You do say you're a Blue Lives Matter proponent, so I'm just wondering how strong that advocacy is. Since I've been in prison, my son has gotten involved with law enforcement. My nephew's in law enforcement. My sponsor is still an integral part of my daily life. Um, I still talk to him regularly. He comes to visit me. His son is in law enforcement which is a major part of my support system. So when I see particularly people that spout off at the mouth because they're uninformed or, or they are uneducated or they harbor ill will towards other individuals, no matter what you do for a living, I find it my place to like say something. I don't shy away from defending the people that I know have a high level of character and pursue the well-being of others yeah inside or outside of prison and it definitely puts me out you know what type of flack have you received in those moments well it all boils down to the content of my character yeah and it, it boils down to the content of the character that i'm defending so particularly with regard to like the flack that i've received since i've been in here i really sean haven't received much what were your initial thoughts about the Black Lives Matter movement? Mm. Do you want uh, my honest opinion? Absolutely. I, I had some books sent in <laughs> because I was ill-informed. Um, I had uh, probably 40 books sent in on the perspective of race and discrimination and disparity and systematic discrimination. And I educated myself to truly understand because I, as much as I would like to say that I can understand what it's like to be in your shoes, I can't. You know, just as much as as much as I endeavor to understand why my children chose to be cops, I can't. But I understand that they have a unique life experience, just like the men and women that are experiencing gross injustice of power throughout this country. It just makes my heart sick 
to see that happen, whether it, it's anybody, kid or father or brother or son or daughter. So when you see those cases of police brutality and you see these calls for accountability and the lack thereof, as far as law enforcement is concerned, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like the Black Lives Matter movement has ground to stand on in regards to some of these systemic ills and the things that need to change? Do you feel like there needs to be more accountability within the department and that things could definitely change for the better? Absolutely. We need to be safe in our community and everyone in our community needs to feel like they're being equally protected by that structure that's put in place to keep us safe. I feel like when I look at George Floyd, for example, Breonna Taylor, when I think about all the lives that have been snuffed out because of the policies that are in place by law enforcement, it makes, it makes me want to cry because the system is designed to protect those in the system. And just like we're used to people manipulating the system in prison, we all know that there's people in law enforcement that are manipulating the system to push their own personal agenda. And it's sad that there's no level of accountability, which you touched on, on that side. Things could definitely improve, and I feel like they will. We're getting to a place where there will be more accountability. The masses are demanding it. One thing I'm curious about, though, is when I consider the Black Lives Matter movement and the Blue Lives Matter movement, you know, I think that you and I both agree that both sides have their merits. But the concern I have is that when most people hear Black Lives Matter, they feel like it's excluding others. They don't just look at the sentiment or the statement for what it is, like a black life matters, mm -hmm. period, point blank. Most people hear that statement and automatically associate it with the organization. And that's why many are reluctant to say that. Same with Blue Lives Matter. That is a general truth. These officers' lives do matter. Like, they put their lives on the line every day when they take to the streets. But so many people have trouble saying that because in saying blue lives matter, they're now automatically endorsing a particular group. Mm. Now, what I'm getting at, do you feel there is a danger inherent in groups just coalescing like that and supporting solely their own? Whenever a group of people join a camp or join a side, anything that anyone else in another side or another group does is taken as a threat to their safety, to their cause, to their mission, to them personally. And whenever that happens, it tends to like throw fuel on that fire necessarily between the two people. Everybody is saying similar things. And depending on what side of the fence you're on, those things become distorted, I feel like, because it's an attack against them, you know? And whenever we feel attacked, we defend. And sometimes when we defend, bad things happen, so. Let's talk a little bit about those similarities. What are those threads that you see uniting all of these groups, that commonality between all of them? I feel like everybody that I've met and interacted with is out for the safety and well-being of their family. Um, everyone that I've met is vying for an opportunity to be included. They're, they're vying for an opportunity or positioning themselves uh, to be 
taken care of, to take care of themselves, to educate themselves, to provide safety and security to their children and their family, and live in an environment that promotes those things. And I think those are the common values of, of most people, I feel like. I mean, there, there might be slight variations here and there, but overall, I feel like we are all seeking to improve our circumstances. Do you feel it necessary to unite all of these organizations and these groups? I don't think it is, no. And I don't think it's beneficial. I really don't. Um, I think what makes us thrive is what makes us unique, right? And as unique individuals in this country, what makes us powerful is what makes us unique. I feel it would be inappropriate to force your peers and your lifestyle to include me in those things. In a similar way, I feel it's inappropriate for that to go the other way. I think the problem lies truly in our ability to like fail to recognize the value of people for who they are unique and among themselves. Some groups may want to be inclusive. Some people may think that their organization or their group has to have segments of certain populations to make them whole. And those individuals that want to be a part of that, want to be a part of that. You know, take Howard University, for example. You're familiar with that school. I would stick out like a sore thumb if I went there. Am I wrong? You would, but I just want to push back just a little bit. Because I do, I hear you. I feel like these groups can survive as separate entities and that we can peacefully coexist and that we can appreciate each other. But me personally, I feel like the more we stay confined to our own groups, the more we allow these barriers to exist and the less inclusive we remain, the more we're just perpetuating like hatred and divisions. And that's why I feel like yeah, I hear you when you're talking about these groups can remain unique in their own thing. But I feel like we also could be doing a much better job at just coming together. Like we just need to find that common ground. No matter whether you support law enforcement, whether you're a Black Lives Matter proponent, whether you feel all lives matter, whatever the case may be, we're all human beings at the end of the day. And like you said earlier on, we all have the same wants, needs, and desires. And I think the more we focus on that, opposed to what our political affiliations are or what organization we're a part of or representing, the better off we're going to be on a whole. And that's kind of what I'm looking at when I look at these groups. Don't get me wrong. Um, I do not believe that we should like create a more defined differences between us. Yeah. Any stretch of the imagination. I do not think that it's effective or healthy for the lines to be etched out so much that you live here, I live there, and this is the way it is. I, I, don't, I don't mean that whatsoever. What I mean is when we consider black businesses, white businesses, law enforcement, Black Lives Matter, we're, we're drawing lines and we're, we're excluding others by doing that. And there's a large majority, I feel there's a large majority that, as you touched on earlier, that may be afraid of 
saying I support Blue Lives Matter. There may be an even larger majority that say um, I support or don't support Black Lives Matter. And because they don't want to be labeled as such, they're excluded from this conversation. And their opinions and their values are excluded from this conversation. I think that when we look at all the things that make you unique, it helps us to recognize the things that make me unique, right? And when we can begin to recognize the things that make us special, it makes the things that make us different a lot easier to cope with, a lot easier to handle, a lot easier to have a conversation about. How do we get people to have those conversations and come to the table, even though they are unique and different? And scared, maybe even scared to voice those opinions. Like, how can we get them to come to the table? It starts with being able to recognize the humanity of who we are as people. I wouldn't have the beliefs that I have if I hadn't lived the life that I've lived, you know? And until you can put yourself in a black community and see how desolate some of these communities are, you won't understand how hard it is to scratch and claw and climb your way out of that community and also be a, and reach back into that community and be accepted. You don't know what it's like to starve until you've been starved. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You just don't. And I don't care who you are. You don't know what it's like to be incarcerated until you've had every single thing that you know taken from you. Whether you deserved it taken from you or not is irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, until you've been in that position, you can't understand those positions. And I think for us to have that conversation, we need to have leaders in our community, leaders in our country that can speak to those different things in a way that touches people that understand who they are. Honestly, I look at like Martin Luther King Jr., right? I'm reading his biography right now. And he spoke to the values of this country, Christian values. And he pushed those values through the civil rights movement as a way to speak to people that didn't understand anything else about civil rights or anything else about segregation, but they knew about the values of being a Christian. And he was able to bridge that gap between white and black Americans using those values. And we need individuals in our country that have the platform and have the knowledge and have the voice that can speak to the values of justice, that can speak to the values of inclusion, that can speak to the values of what it means to not have the opportunities that everyone else has. And when we can get voices that continue to do that, we'll be able to make progress. The complexity of your situation Kevin again speaks to something that we touched on at the beginning of this segment is that you were raised on both sides of the tracks. You've had all these different experiences and you have these conflicting views because there's one aspect of you. There's one side of you that wants to support law enforcement. You have these loved ones that are near and dear to you. And you also know the realities of some of these social ills that are plaguing America in urban communities. So a question that comes to mind as we have this conversation, I consider, you know, how you're an advocate for Blue Lives Matter, and I also consider how you would like to see change within the system and criminal justice reform. How is it you're able to hold those two things 
it almost seems counterintuitive, right? So how are you able to support both causes? Mm. I would say accountability. If I'm being held accountable, then the people that are in a position to protect me also need to be held accountable. However, there's no accountability on either side of this. And it's really easy to point that out when I'm sitting in prison. Is it safe to say that you feel like as long as there's more oversight and your ability to see things objectively, like that's what allows you to hold those beliefs? Like you're able to step outside of the situation, see both points of view, and you see the call for accountability, the need for accountability, the need for oversight. And it's because of that objectivity that you're able to hold both of those beliefs at the same time. I mean, we're talking about human beings and we're complex individuals. And it's hard to put us in a box and say, A, B, and C is going to fix this problem. Yeah. And, you know, none of those solutions have anything to do with who I am as a person or who you are as a person or who this law enforcement officer is as a person. Um, I feel like there should be some very clear parameters established that define the roles of the individuals that are in a position to hold the community in a safe way. And there also needs to be very specific parameters for individuals that do things that violate the community norms. And this is what I feel is necessary to be able to move forward. And when we can do that, it changes the landscape. It, mo it moves that narrow tunnel into a wide open terrain of possibilities. Just give each other more room for mercy. Yeah. Yeah. So one last question for you, man. What do you hope people take away from our conversation today? Is there anything you feel was left unsaid? I hope that people take away from this conversation that we all have unique life experiences and that the quicker we can step out of our own unique life experience and into the life experience of another person, the easier it is to come to some sort of understanding about what's going on. No matter what side you're on. Yep. Well, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today, man. Very insightful, very profound. The man I've always known you to be, man. Thank you, Kevin. I miss these conversations, I'll tell you that. So it could be worse when it hurts. It's a blessing in the scars when we heal. And the lesson in the pain that we feel. If he wills, when we put our faith in God, it will all be revealed. If we fall, we can still rise seven times and be more wise than we were before we ever hit the ground. Being down as a child, I can smile as a man when they tell me that I can't overcome something now. Do you know in prison we operate under a code, once named the convict code? I realized that these standards that are culturally accepted inside are not necessarily normal outside of prison. You know, like, I'm thinking of, like, chow hall manners and uh, bathroom manners, things like that. Um, those are things that are in prison, uh, whether you talk to cops or not. That's part of the convict code. There's a, there's a long list of the convict code that wouldn't necessarily be seen as normal, quote-unquote normal, outside of prison. Yet I see the similarity to the movements outside of prison. I see the similarity in the thread because they're born of the ideologies that in essence are what Kevin spoke to. He said that it's the desire to protect some, yourself and your family. Um, and I think of like Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, 
each one of those people have a different reason why they stand in union with others. Uh, but I think at the essence of it is protection. And I think the essence is the same. And life seems simple when you break it down to just the basics of survival. But I got to ask you, because I, when I think about it, I'm just, aren't we beyond surviving in this country? I think that depends on who you are. We've been enthralled in thriving, not just surviving. We were surviving in the 1700s. But here in the 21st century, I think we're thriving. But the citizens are barely surviving. Then I would argue that the government and the country is barely surviving. And that, you know, that right there is a gap. That is a divide between the have and the have nots. But if inclusion and diversity were the pillars that society could be built on, then the bridges happen. I just know. I go back to like Clarkson and and he was talking about the ants being agitated. But I know that oil and water don't mix until they are agitated. You know what I'm saying? So you have these two different solutions. And I think that until there's something that me- that messes up the norm, we don't know that needs to be messed up. Like we just were living in such this, it's just the way it is. So complacency seems to be where we are. And the hard work of solving the grievances with love and the accountability needed, I think maybe it's too much for our society. It may be. It may be too much. And I can't stress it enough that Black Lives Matter, the movement, was born because of the lack of accountability to systemic racism. And when I say systemic racism, that is a simplification of a complex topic. Kevin said accountability is a start. Yeah. But I want our audience to listen to our creative builder, thinker, and our tireless agent of change, Dr. Ashley Hamilton, because she's going to speak with the executive director of the Colorado Department of Corrections, Dean Williams. And he courageously queries all of us to ask a primary question. Do we have a problem? Yes or no? Dean, thank you so much for being with us on this episode of Within. Uh, Later in this episode, we're going to be interviewing one of the deputy directors of the Colorado Department of Corrections, Andre Stansel, and we're going to be asking him more about the Grace Alliance. To start off, though, I'm curious, as executive director of the CDOC, can you speak to a little bit of why you wanted to create Grace? Well... This had been in the back of my head and on my heart for a while, but I'll tell you, me like a lot of my other colleagues, the the death, murder of George Floyd sort of was, um, I guess was, just to be honest with you, an impetus and quite frankly, just a, you know, a, a, a coming to Jesus moment, if you will. Many of us who have been in this field or this business looked at that the way that many way people in the public looked at that and said, what in the world is going on? And I think the whole race issue in the country has never been, never really truly been reconciled, right, in many ways. I think we want it to be. I think there are many who would like it to be further down the road than it is, but it's not. 
that event of the death of George Floyd, like a lot of things, it changed a lot of people. I've heard my colleagues for the first time in the country who are African-American leaders of correctional systems. My friend uh, Charles, who runs, um, uh, he's becoming a friend, um, who runs Nevada. I heard him talk with my colleagues about what it meant to be a black man to lead a, a correctional system. Rob Jeffries, who runs the Illinois correctional system, who's a black man, and talk what it means to be a black leader to run this system and their own personal feelings about what it meant, how angry they were personally, how upset they were. And I think that started conversations between me and them that I've never, I never had before. Like, what is it like to be a black man to leave a correctional system where there's disproportionately confinement of, of people of color? I mean, Colorado, four or five times the people of color of African-Americans, they represent 20, 20 some percent of the population. They represent, of the prison population, they represent four or five percent of the state population. They're overrepresented four or five times. They're not committing four or five the time of the levels of crime. There's a problem. So I, I've had this discussion with a lot of correctional colleagues, and I think you have to start the conversation with a very primary basic question, which is, do we have a problem, yes or no, in this country and in this correctional system with race? Yeah. Life's missing in the earth, still looking for a Christian in the church. Blindly the blind, the priest's vision is blurred. Rarely mention the word, only fiction is heard, is my depiction absurd. Just don't sit there. Just don't sit there. Let that resonate. Our history and our future as a country have and will have many defining moments. Meet the embodiment of the combined movements that are dividing America. Andre Stancil, he is the Deputy Director of Prisons in CDOC. He is answering the question, do we have a problem here? The interesting thing is, is his eyes are open to the old learned beliefs that he once knew, and he had to let go of him in order to be the best he could be. I interview Andre, the director of the Grace Alliance, which is a CDOC program that was built and designed to give every one of us, and that's uh, incarcerated people, prison staff, members of the community. It was uh, designed to give each one of us, regardless of our cultural definitions, an equal opportunity to thrive. Mr. Stancil is leading this innovative family of individuals, and they are proving to be great bridge builders. Andre, man, thank you for joining us. So, we've had some interesting conversations, to say the least, especially revolving around Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter. And if you don't mind, I'm going to jump right into the deep end. Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Do you have an opinion? The Blue Lives Matter versus, the, I, I hate to say versus, because I think we, 
I think we labeled it, uh, but I think we all want the same thing. I get off into those conversations as well because, you know, being in law enforcement pretty much my whole working life, you know, I, I, I can see the, the, the aspect of the Blue Lives Matter, but also being African-American, I definitely can see the aspects and, and the, the, the side of the Black Lives Matter, you know. But the one thing I always tell my friends when we start having those debates is pretty simple. You know, when, you, when you're looking at the difference between Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter, I chose to be in law enforcement. I made that choice to become a blue life. I, I didn't choose to be a black life. That, that I was born that way. So that, that is one of the topics that we always, but that's a whole other series. No, 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 that, that right there, that actually, that right there, that is the conversation. And I'm so glad that you said that because thinking about your identities as someone who has worked in the career path that you have worked in as an African-American, I feel that you embody so much of the conversation that we are trying to have. And I also think that what you just said about what we are noticing is coming out of these conversations is that we actually do want some of the same things. And we just, you know, have these camps and these labels that really have caused such division that we really can't even see each other anymore. And you're a black man and being in the position that you're in, those are two identities, you know, that at points can clash. So I'm wondering if for a moment, can you talk about what it means to hold both of those identities? It's a tough one to be in because there's, there's expectations on both sides. And there's times where when I've walked into a facility as a warden and, and they see, you know, a lot of people see whether it's staff or, or that, you know, incarcerated individuals see a black warden, especially if you're a person of color, there's, there's automatic expectations that would come from that. Okay, by the time we get a brother in here, and, you know, and, and, and that part was good. But, but then the flip side of that is, you know, that there's always that expectation that because you've, you know, experienced a lot of the things that I experienced, then, then you should understand and, and you should be willing to look the other way, you know. And then on the flip side of that, you get, well, anytime there's an issue that involves race, you know, well, let's get Andre, you know, to go and talk to the group of black incarcerated guys, you know, because he understands that. that. That was always one challenge. And then the other challenge is sometimes when we see people of color get in positions, we automatically start questioning, well, how did they get there? What did they do to get there? We don't know anything about those people, but but we started trying to build a narrative in our mind, um, especially in some of the areas that I've been in. I was the warden in public Louisiana. I don't know if any of you guys know where Louisiana is, but it is definitely not known for its diversity. Uh, down in Florence, I came into Florence as an officer when they had a group of white staff that were going around and particularly beating on black inmates. They would, you know, cuff them and beat on them. And, and I came in right at the tail end of that, you know, and, and that cowboy mentality, they call themselves the cowboys. That was what they call themselves. And I remember they used to, to tell gang members, you know, you guys have your gang, we have ours. We call ourselves the cowboys. And and they made it clear that their beliefs wasn't just toward black inmates. It was, you know, they felt that way about staff too. I remember getting phone calls where they would tell me, you know, you might want to be careful with signs you choose because when you need assistance, then we're the ones that come, not the inmates, we're the ones that come. So just things like that. I can go on and on talking about those challenges. That, that, that's a lot. So then, I wonder why even join corrections? Why even become a part of this field? 
because I wanted to make a change. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a giver, man, and, and I was raised that way by my mom. My mom and dad separated when I was 12, but my mom always taught me, you know, stay true to who you are. And, you know, if you care about people and, and you want to take care of people, then you try to find a career field where you can do that. But, you know, I looked at crisis as a way of going in and being able to, to, to make a change. But when you when you walk through those doors and you really start living it, you see that there is such a large system that it's kind of hard for one person to make a change unless they're again, you're in that position where you need to make that change at. So. Okay. So I'm glad that you touched on change because change is an idea and most usually is based on any one person's or any one group's perception of what is wrong. And that then leads to what they feel needs to be changed. So then my next question to you is, is how do you define change? How do you define change? What does change look like? Uh, what do you feel needs to be changed? Well, you know, one of the things um, that I, I looked at here and I have asked around about is, you know, every system, I mean, like in the federal system, we have an actual department that is, is geared toward looking at diversity and looking at looking at the, the culture of, of the Bureau. And, and one of the things that I noticed quickly when I got to the state system is that that system didn't currently exist. Now, whether it was one before I got here or not, I don't know. I can only speak about when I'm here. I have this, this little thing that I do where, you know, I, I take a piece of paper and I'll write BS and then I draw a line, I write AS. And I'll ask people, what does this mean? You know, and so when you're looking at the paper and you see BS on one side and AS on the other side, you know, so you, you they get all these 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 weird, you know, answers. And, but it's, it's very simple. It's before stencil and after stencil. I, I, <laughs> I'm not accountable for what happened before stencil. I wasn't here. But I am accountable for what happens after stencil. So I need to do everything I can to make that AS part, make it, you know, as, as pleasant for all. Because when you look at a situation, the way I look at situations, there's some situations, like you said, that need change. And then there's situations where things can be improved upon. So, and you'll hear me talk about when we start talking about grace, uh, we want to cover both. Um, one of the things that I can tell you right now that needs to change is I don't need to be the only black man sitting in meetings, whether it's meetings where we're talking about trash removal or if it's meetings where we're talking about making significant decisions that affect lives in order for us to, to effectively manage a multi-diverse population, we need to have multi-diversity in the room making those decisions. Because if you haven't had any of the lived experiences of the people that you're making those decisions for, it's hard for you to really make decisions that, that are going to make a positive impact on their lives. So in order to cover that, the decision room needs to look like the population that you're making those decisions for. Well, <laughs> well, Andre, man, I thank you for saying that because I have been saying that for the longest. I mean, I just met you, but <laughs> but what you just said, I've said. So I have to ask, when was Grace established? Has it been around long or is it a brand new approach from the department to an age old problem? So it's an interesting story. A lot of people think that it spun out of the George Floyd incident and 
to a degree it did, but there was conversations about building something like this before those things even happened. I had conversations with, with Matt Hansen and Travis and Dean and basically talked to them about the same thing that I just said too. You know, it's, it's, it's strange that I go into meetings and I'm the only one that looks like me in those meetings. So, so we were having these conversations before, but you know, prison life happens and, and things and priorities start getting bumped around when George Floyd occurred and all those other incidents that occurred right around that time. That's when Dean kind of, you know, reached out and said, hey, the time is now for us to do this. And, you know, he gave me total autonomy to, to kind of pick who is going to be in the group, what direction we take, whether we're looking at policies or they're looking at staffing or whatever everything is open to us and he's made that perfectly clear to all the exec staff he's made it perfectly clear to everyone which which really helps because it's one thing that to say that that you're serious about something but it's another thing to actually have actions to prove that you're serious about that and once they see that the leader is is serious about it, then it's, it's easier for us to get access to all the areas that we want. Because in, in prison, just prison environments, period, and it's the second system I've worked for, um, and this system is a little more transparent than the federal system. I wouldn't be doing conversations like this with you in the federal system because they just weren't transparent. In the state system, there's a little more transparency. Does everybody like what we're doing? Absolutely not. We have this this email um, that, that the Grace Alliance we, we developed. I don't refer to us as a group. I don't refer to this as an initiative because to me, when you say group and initiative, that's something that is temporary. I refer to the Grace Alliance as a family. And the alliance is just formed of POC staff to we have partners with Vera and Milpa. We have people from a community. We have incarcerated people on the um, on the communities, we have formerly incarcerated people. We try to touch everybody, um, every area that we could, because there again, in order to make effective decisions, you need many people in the room, and not everyone sitting in the room thinking the exact same way. All right, I'm tracking you. I hear you. And you know what? I agree with you. But can you illustrate for us what the main goal of the Grace family is? So we have this long mission statement, but ultimately our, our main goal is to create a culture where everyone can thrive. And we understand that thriving means different things to different people. But, but our goal is to create a culture where everyone can thrive. Whatever your definition of thriving is, we want the culture to be such that you can thrive in that culture. And when we were, when we were looking at that, building that, that goal, that mission statement, that vision, it wasn't where we just sat in a room with a bunch of staff and tried to figure out how what, what the mission is. We actually elicited input from incarcerated guys. We reached out to some guys in our valley. And, because thriving to me may mean something totally different than thriving to you. Thriving to a person that's doing two years is something totally different to a person that's doing a life sentence. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to encapsulate that because in order to truly meet our goal, our vision, we need to build that environment where everyone can thrive. So is the main mission of Grace connected to race or, or something else or, or what? 
similarity to everything, and that's what the name GRACE stands for. It stands for Gender, Race, Ability, Awareness, Culture, and Equity. So we're not just focusing on, on, on one inequality. We want you to be able to thrive in whatever area that's important to you. Okay. So a moment ago, you brought up George Floyd. And I just had a conversation with the gentleman, and he said that what happened to George Floyd was a police issue and a societal issue, not necessarily a prison issue. So I'm wondering if you see a difference there. Is there a difference there? And I'm not talking about what happened to George Floyd specifically. What I'm asking is about the department's reaction to societal issues and how does grace benefit society, even though it operates within prison? So I, I, I don't believe we can isolate what happened to George Floyd to a police issue or an outside the walls issue. It's, it's an issue that we believe in grace that it impacts inside the walls and outside the walls. So some of the things that we immediately looked at was we do training. And of course, I can't go into all of the, the, the tactics we use, but there were tactics that need to be evaluated. And, and once brought up, we're no longer doing them in the department. So I think it's an everyone issue from kids on through senior citizens it is something that we all need to address because there's no difference in, in having that uncomfortable feeling as a black man walking down a, a sidewalk outside the walls than there is if you are a black man walking down the sidewalk inside the facility. If, if you're worried you're going to be treated differently just because of your color, then that's an issue that, that we and Grace hope to alleviate. Now, will that happen under my tenure? Probably not. It didn't get like this in a matter of days or nights, and, and you're not going to undo what's been done in a matter of days. And, and that's why we want to build something that's bigger than, than the Grace Alliance group that is currently sitting there. We want to build something that is, is so solid and is working so well that no matter who comes in, if anybody is currently here leaves, we want to build something that whoever comes in behind us sees the value in what we've done and not want to change it. I know I got an X amount of time to be here. So what we're hoping to build is something that no matter who comes in behind us, behind us they see the value in what this alliance has done and, and they maintain it and it just keeps going because it's going to take time for culture to change. Andre, man, thank you. You're shining some light and I'm learning a lot here today. But I'm curious if you can break down how grace works within the community and helps bridge that divide between uh, differing philosophies in the communities of Colorado. Well, I guess part of it was we wanted to make sure we brought representation in from, from all the different communities because we quickly learned that if we build a team that only consists of DOC employees, then we're only going to think like DOC employees. If we start including incarcerated individuals and families of incarcerated individuals and, and previously incarcerated individuals and, and organizations that are here to fight for you know, equality, once we start bringing that in the room, then, then they're going to challenge that inside the walls way of thinking and they're going to bring an aspect to the table that we wouldn't get if we didn't have them on board and there's a lot of times where having that voice has really been impactful in things that we were doing because when we're sitting talking like i said i have two different systems but they're still systems so when i'm thinking i'm still thinking in a system sort of way but when you have people that never been in a system or not affiliated with a system, they're comfortable in an environment, comfortable enough in an environment to challenge 
the way that a system thinks by testifying before the, the joint committee about the Grace Alliance. So we have their support. And like I said, the, the main thing that we can do now as, as this Grace Alliance, the most important thing we can do is build a solid foundation that those behind us can continue to build on. But that's going to take the incarcerated individuals and the staff. We, we kind of want to do it because the ultimate vision of Grace is we have the main alliance. Um, but the ultimate, my ultimate goal, my ultimate vision is that there's a Grace Alliance in every facility. And we are going to come and have conversations with blended groups. And we as people are going to figure out how we solve issues that people are going through because it's not a staff issue. It's not an incarcerated population issue. It's a people issue. And the only way to fix a people issue is to have people coming up with the solutions. Mr. Stancil, man, a million thank yous. You're a true leader. And really, I feel honored to meet you. And I am grateful that you're in the position that you are. And speaking for everyone in our virtual room here, man, I see you and I thank you. Seriously. Mr. Stancil, in my mind, is a modern-day pioneer, and he is charting territory that is new, and it's not just for us inside, it's for outside the fences, too, for all of us to have the more meaningful life, a safer life, get down to the basic needs of human beings. I also have to point out he's aware that not all are drinking the juice, you know? Not everybody's willing to get on board with this. So, Andrew, I really thank you, and I hope to see we all have a little bit more grace in our lives. You know what, Denise, I've uh, spoken with Mr. Stancil a few times. He lets his actions speak. They speak louder than his words. And I, too, want to see grace in action. And that's what you spoke of earlier, Denise. The work involved is not easy. It's not. It is exhausting to move the needle of what has been accepted socially for so long. And I got to ask. Are we all implicated in the wrongs that continue to go on? Are we implicated in those? Are we perpetrators of those? I always have to go back what Dr. H said. Once you learn something, once you see something, once you hear something, you don't get to go back and it not exist anymore. With that knowledge that she bestowed upon me, yes, I believe we all are. We are all implicated in wrongs if we continue down the path we are on. And I go back to the summer of 2020 and the eyes that it opened, including my own, because I see things a lot differently now. I feel hungry to find more information about our past. What we learned in school is not all there is. So, yeah, having the knowledge that I've gained, we are complicit in further harm if we do not change. Right. Mr. Stansel did leave an impression on me for sure. I am thankful we have another leader that is a builder and a renegade. Values of the past that worked in the Colorado DLC no longer have such secure footing. The steps necessary to change or build anew are what are needed. Impact is only felt when we are affected in a personal manner. We all need to understand we all have some skin in this game. Quotable for sure. I know when he said that, I was like, we all have skin in this game. We do. We all do. 
Mr. Sansel said, we must see we are all in this. No lines should really be drawn. And Mr. Williams simplified many tough subjects with the question, do we have a problem here? And these small steps towards healing is how we are finding our North Star as a society, as American culture. These conversations are the foundation of the Great Bridge. They are. And after hearing these amazing humans, I'm going to imagine myself sitting there drinking my morning coffee and I'm contemplating my role in life in this world. I think my response is just going to be, don't just sit there. For within season two, we have our resident poet, William S. Graham from the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center back with us in the virtual room. In all of our interviews, Will sits, listens, and then crafts an individualized poem for each interview. Here's Will. Grace. In a world where change is demanded, we understand it as it is, sometimes overlooking the obvious, as if it doesn't exist. We know it does, but what is it? It's not what happened, saying what happened to Grace. Just don't sit there, stand up and own it as your own. Let everyone know you care with a hand of trust, not a hand of fear, because grace belongs to the whole world. And it starts right here, right here in our hearts. Grace. For more content, music, poetry, and visual art, look deeper within at thisiswithin.com. Within is Ashley Hamilton, executive producer, Andrew Draper, co-host, Denise Presson, co-host, Terry Mosley, producer, Angel Lopez, media production and creative support, William S. Graham, Denver Complex creative consultant, Sean Marshall, associate producer, Travis Barnes, creative music producer, Sarah Berry, associate producer, Matthew Labonte, segment co-host, Brett Phillips, segment co-host. Within is a collaboration between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Thank you for listening and choosing to look within. Troubles come and go, but you gotta know it could be worse. We are blessed when we should be cursed. Homies about the crowd when she heard he died, looking in her eyes, cause she always thought I would be first. And uh, we thirst for the water from the Father, and we hunger for the bread that was promised by the Son. Honest, when he comes, all the problems will be gone as we run to the one who forgives what we done. We've been made through a full moment, but there's joy in the morning, like the dawn of a new day's life. It's pain in the morning, but the rain after coming, leave the necessary water that is sustained life. Thank Christ for the price of his sacrifice, made it right known when the light came on. Wrong is the struggle when we cuddle with the dark in our hearts as opposed to a righteous throne. My song is a melody to let us see that there's a revelation when the tribulation comes. Life is like a barbecue with people on the grill. If you don't burn in the fire, then you better when you done. Stormy weather got the sun looking like it don't shine, but we know time with a lot of wind comes through. So think about the lightning, the thunder, and the drought. When you praying for some rain, you invite them too. That's true. So it could be worse when it hurts. It's a blessing in the scars when we heal and the lesson in the pain that we feel. If he wills, when we put our faith in God, it will all be revealed. If we fall, we can still rise.
seven times and be more wise than we were before we ever hit the ground. Being down as a child, I can smile as a man when they tell me that I can't overcome something now. Freedom. Who ain't freedom, freedom?